0: Father in heaven, for the cause of Jesus Christ, for the advancement of your kingdom, for the joy of your people, and for the salvation of the lost, we pray that you will do a mighty work in our hearts in these moments. We ask it in the powerful name of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. There are really two ways to live. Just two. Bound or unbound. If you look up those words in the dictionary, you will see that bound means to be secured within a cover as a book. To be unbound is to be Unsecured, to be removed or unattached from something as if a book. So, if there are two ways to live, bound or unbound, to be bound to the scriptures is to have your mind and your heart secured to God's word. To be bound, your purpose in life is God's glory. What you really want is to see God magnified more than anything else in your life. To be bound, your power source is God's word, God's spirit, and God's people. To be bound, your happiness is found in knowing God and following his revealed will. To be bound, your decision making is based on God's wisdom and not your own. To be bound, your identity is found in Jesus Christ. To be bound, your confidence comes not from something that goes on in this world toward you, but it's in God's love. Your relationships with people are opportunities to share God's grace and to experience God's grace as they pour back into you. Your moral convictions are shaped and founded by the unchanging Word of God. And your church membership is your primary way to receive God's Word, to fellowship with God's people, and to represent God's Son in this world. But to be unbound, to be unbound is to have your mind and your heart detached from God's word separated from God's word oh it may be close it, it may be near but it's not secured you see your purpose in life is more about really personal ambition personal glory if you will whether it be your marriage your family your job your school your accomplishments your money your power source is not God's wisdom or God's word, but it's really your own intellect, your, your, your work ethic, your willpower, your IQ, your creativity. Your happiness is not based really on the unchanging word of God, but rather the, the goodness of your circumstances. How good are my circumstances right now determines how happy I really am. Your decision-making is based on, on human wisdom, your identity, get this, is really, if, if you drill down, is really about your ethnicity, your family, your income level, your personal achievements, and yes, even your Christianity. Your confidence comes really from your education, your experience, your strength, your good looks even, your relationships with people are primarily opportunities for you to advance your personal ambitions. Your moral convictions are shaped by tradition, personal preference, the latest trends in our cultural world. And your church membership even is a way to stay connected to your family values that you were taught. It's a way for you to express that you aren't an atheist and that you have a support system of like-minded people who will help you if you run into a problem. Now, in last week's message, Corey preached about what happens when you're unbound from Scripture. There's a progression. You're loosed from God's Word. You become jealous. You become angry and become violent. Or at least that's what happened with the Thessalonians. But there are a thousand other ways that unboundedness from Scripture is played out even in our own lives. Turn to Acts chapter 17 right now. Acts 17. We studied 1 through 9 last week. We're going to hone in on 10 through 15 today, but we're going to read all 15 verses. And my goal right now is to inspire and equip you to bind yourself to Scripture. I want to inspire and equip you to bind yourself to Scripture. The title of the message is on the screen. It's Bound. And saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas. As did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous. And taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob they set the city in an uproar, and they attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, these men who've turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason, he's received them, and they're all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there's another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now, these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all diligence, with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them, therefore, believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, 45 miles away, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul, who helped Paul, brought him as far as Athens, 195 miles south. And receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. This passage begins with an escape and ends with an escape. If you look down at the beginning of verse 10 and then toward 13, 14, and 15, you see two escapes. Paul is escaping from Thessalonica to Berea, 45 miles west. And then at the end, he's escaping from Berea to Athens, nearly 200 miles south. And I think it's worth noting, because it's not the primary um, portion of our study of our text today, is that Paul was always on the run. He was always on the run, constantly being attacked and rejected and receiving physical abuse by those who hated the message that he preached and taught. I mean, he couldn't stay anywhere for very long. Until people would come after him in order to hurt him. You know, it reminds me that that Paul's message that he preached, while powerful, was also deadly. It, It was transformational, but it was costly. It was amazing, but it was, and could be, fatal. And I think let's just pull over for a moment. Thinking about Paul's ministry... And thinking about his church planting, his disciple making, his preaching, his effectiveness. If you go back and look at Paul's ministry, you've got to say that could be the most effective gospel ambassador the world has ever seen post-Jesus. But this is what we've all also got to say. We all want Paul's ministry but we don't really want Paul's life. Like, we want those church plants. We want to see conversions. We want to see a, a host of disciples being made from either our personal ministry or our church ministry. Like, we want that, but the question really is are we willing to do the kinds of things that it takes to get that? To do that? You see, because we really like. As Americans, we really like ease. We like to do things on our schedule, in our timetable, in our fashion. But I'm not so sure that gospel ministry success happens apart from suffering, sacrifice, denying ourselves. A.W. Tozer says it's doubtful whether God can bless a man greatly until he's hurt him deeply. Charles Spurgeon said our infirmities are the black velvet on which the diamond of God's love glitters all the more brightly. Paul Tripp said we suffer so that we may know Christ more deeply and appreciate his grace more fully. We suffer so that we may be part of the good he does in the lives of others. And that's exactly what marked the ministry of the Apostle Paul. He was seeking to be part of the good that God is going to do in the lives of people. And he was willing to undergo whatever it took to do just that. Now, I do want to say this, brothers and sisters. Don't dismiss your sufferings and your problems and your trials as meaningless. Because when you see your sufferings and trials and difficulties and problems as purposeful, and your goal is the glory of God and the advancement of his kingdom, you can leverage all of those problems for the advancement of Christ as you demonstrate his worth and his power and his faithfulness and his love to a watching world who is seeing how you're going to respond. Now that is just based on the reality that Paul, who was bound to Scripture, experienced major suffering, and was chased out of so many towns as we read this book of Acts. Now, what I want us to see right now are three progressions of God's word when people are bound to it. Three progressions of God's word when people are bound to it. And what we should see and what we should be compelled to do is to bind ourselves to it. The first thing that I want us to see is an exposition of God's word. An exposition of God's word. If you look at verse 10, it says that the brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue, which is is just so motivating in and of itself that Paul goes for three straight Sabbaths in Thessalonica to the Jewish synagogue, and that's where the root of his problems really began, really started, where it was birthed out of. And the first place that he goes to when he gets to another town is the Jewish synagogue. That's very motivating to me. But what I, I want us to understand is there's some white space that we need to fill in at, at the end of verse 10 and the beginning of verse Verse 11. I think that Luke doesn't want to repeat exactly what he said about what Paul did in Thessalonica. He don't want to use the exact same verbiage again, so he just lets us assume that Paul did in Berea what he had also done in Thessalonica. And so let's look back up at verses 1 through 3, because there is where we see an exposition of God's Word that Paul carries out not only in Thessalonica, but then also in Berea. It says that when they got to uh, Thessalonica, verses 1 through 3, Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days, not not one day, not a 45-minute one-shot deal, but on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures. He explained, he proved that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. What does he do? He reasons. This word reason, it means to teach publicly, to present intelligent arguments, to allow questions and comments and challenges, to, to discuss back and forth with one another, to seek to understand a matter. The, the, the Greek word is dialegami. It's where we get our English word dialogue. Okay, And so there is a sense in which there is a dialogue happening where Paul is opening up the parchments. He's taking the scrolls and he's explaining to them that the Christ had to suffer and that Christ had to rise from the dead. And then he tells about the person of Jesus. And they're like, but wait a minute, wait a minute, what, 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 about, what about this? Or what about what Ezekiel says? Or, or what about Malachi and how he said that there's going to be this concrete? And, 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 and he's like, okay, wait a minute, we'll get there, we'll get there. But he reasons with them. What else does he do? He explains and proves that it was necessary. The word explains means to open something up that was closed. It's it's used throughout the New Testament to describe the opening of the ears, the opening of the eyes, the opening of the heart, the opening of the mind. As a matter of fact, in Luke chapter 2, Luke actually uses it, same writer, uses it to describe the opening of the womb when there is a birth. In in Luke 24, in the same verse, he uses the word opened twice right here when it says that Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, is walking along with those men along that road and he opened up the scriptures to them from the Old Testament to prove that he was the Savior. And it says that he also opened their hearts. This idea of explaining is opening something up that was once closed. And the word proved. It means to put something before someone. It is most often used in ancient literature to to describe the the setting of a table for people who are about to eat. Setting the bread, the oil, the cup, the plate, the vegetables, the meat, the silverware. Everything out. Setting it before so that when someone looks at this, they see a spread of what is Really looking good. And Luke says that Paul laid it out, the scriptures out before the Bereans for them to see this spread of the gospel. And then of course, he proclaims that Jesus, this one I'm proclaiming to you is the Christ. Now, I think we could just potentially stop there. And to say, that's great that Paul did it, and let's go to the next thing. Let's go to the next movement. But I don't want to do that. I want to get a taste of what Paul did with the Brians. I want to get a taste of of, of what it was like to to behold exactly this person of Jesus that we haven't heard, this Jesus of Nazareth. But you're, you're, you're going to prove to us, Paul? And so let's do this for a moment, church. Let's take our Bibles. And let's turn back to Isaiah 53. Now Isaiah 52 verses 13 through all the way through the end of of Isaiah 53 describes in third person form about the suffering servant of the Lord. They're they're looking for this servant to be a king, a conqueror, a a royalty, someone who's going to rule and reign with an iron fist and is going to usher in God's glorious and mighty kingdom. But then in Isaiah, which is not read in Jewish synagogues, which is not read in Jewish synagogues today, Paul says, let's go there. And for our matters, we've got numbers besides the passages. Let's go to Isaiah 53, beginning in maybe verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken. Smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement, the the punishment that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep, every one of us, Everyone is included. No one is excluded. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord, the Lord, has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Brothers and sisters, this is talking about the Messiah. This is talking about the servant that Yahweh is going to send, who is going to bring redemption and hope and life. That's who he's talking about. And look, there's this sense of substitution. We're all sinners. We all need, in our warrant, our merit, we all need to be crushed. We need to be crushed under the weight of God's holy justice and judgment against sinners like us. But what the word is saying right here is that that the suffering servant of the Lord is going to do that in our place. In our place. He's going to do that. And Paul would say, this man named Jesus from Nazareth, he came and he went down to Jerusalem after living a sinless life and he suffered and he went up to the cross and he was pierced and he took not only the unrighteous wrath of people who were jealous of him, but also the righteous wrath of Almighty God. I have friends who were there and saw it. Jesus of Nazareth. But let's go to another passage. Psalm 22. Because that's really from the first person plural perspective. Let's go to Psalm 22, which David wrote, and we love David. David is the king that... We, we love to read about because we know that there's going to be a greater David that's coming. There's a greater David that he even talks about. But David wrote Psalm 22. And of course, we not only call this a Davidic psalm, but we really call it a royal psalm. Because royalty writes it. And Brothers and sisters, listen to these words. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry by night, but you don't answer. And by night, but I find no rest. You are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In your father, our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and they were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I, I'm a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust at your mother's breast, at my mother's breast. On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you've you've been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Many bulls, many angry men. Encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It's melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a pot shirt. My tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They've pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They stare. And gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O oh Lord, be not far off. Oh, you my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword. My precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You've rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. Brothers. We know that our king that we love, David, did not experience this. But Jesus of Nazareth, who went to Jerusalem, there are 34 descriptions in this psalm alone that he experienced at Golgotha. He is the eternal son of God who came to planet earth and he lived sinlessly, but we treated him as if he had lived our life. I have witnesses, Paul would say, who could talk about the people who wagged their heads and said, if you really are the son of God, come down from that tree. I have witnesses, Paul would say, who could say that there was great shame as the savior was crucified up there naked with everyone laughing at him. You see, Jesus, Paul would say, is the king, but he had to suffer. And the Old Testament, our covenant from Genesis to Malachi, shows us that clearly. Now, I think Paul would take them probably really close by to Psalm 16. Go back maybe six chapters there in Psalm. He would say, Bereans, brothers, that's sad. It's tragic. It's just, but it's tragic. But I I don't want to leave you there. Because if you've read Psalm 16, another Psalm of David, he He goes on and on about the preserving power of Almighty God. And then in verse 9, he says, Therefore my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. I believe Paul would say, as much as we love David, and as much as we herald David, the truth is, number one, David was not ultimately and perfectly holy. We know the story of Bathsheba. We know the story of Uriah. We know the story about the cover-up. But two, we also know that David was buried and there has been no recounting of him rising from the dead. But there is a greater David. His name is Jesus. I'm telling you about him now. He is risen from The dead. He is holy, 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 and he's risen, risen, risen. Finally, Paul might take them to Psalm 110. Go to Psalm 110. Because not only is he risen, he is exalted. And he is presently at the right hand of God the Father, mediating, advocating for all who would put their faith in him. Again, David says, the Lord, Yahweh, that's Yahweh, the Lord, says to my Lord, Adonai, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies Your footstool. The greater David, King Jesus is presently at the right hand of our great God, and he is, in fact, appealing on our behalf. He's praying for us. He's wanting you to come to him to find your hope in him, your salvation in him, your forgiveness in him, your everything in him. And King David actually forecasted it when he said, the Lord said to my Lord, come here, sit with me until your enemies are made your footstool. See, Paul would not just give a little dainty, a little little, uh, sprinkling, and expect some people like the Bereans to say, Oh, okay, let's follow this Jesus. Why? Because they were bound to the Word of God. And so, church let's observe how bound to the word of god that paul was that he could go and accurately intelligently and powerfully demonstrate that jesus is the christ that god had forecasted for over a couple of thousand of years and second let's now look at an examination of the word that that the bereans have so we have an exposition of the word and now go back to Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17. We see first the exposition of the word, and now we see the examination of God's word. Now, these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Luke actually makes a comment about three things as it regards to the Brians. First of all, he makes a comment about their character. He says they were more noble than the Thessalonians. Some of you said more noble-minded. That word noble It literally means, like in its strictest sense, it's talking about social nobility. It's talking about being a descendant from a a good family, to have a high rank in society, to, to have a high rank among the socially elites and the social classes of the day. That's the word noble. He applies it here to their spiritual nobility, and he says that their hearts and their minds were fixed on things above and not on the things of the earth, is what Luke is saying about them. But how does he know that about them? It's their actions, their enthusiasm. Because it says they received the word with all eagerness. That word receive, it means to to voluntarily take something on that's brought to you. That that word eagerness means enthusiasm. Enthusiasm. Excitement. It doesn't just mean, well, I'll listen to this for a while or I'll take it in because that's what we're supposed to do. We got to go to the synagogue. We got to be taught. You know, we got to listen to this guy. He's coming in from out of town. You know, I don't know how long he's going to be. No, no. They received that word with enthusiasm and eagerness because they knew that in the scriptures were found the words of life. And so you have their character and their enthusiasm, but then you see their diligence. It says that they examine the scriptures every single day. They sifted through the Scriptures. They began to, to, to not only read the passages that Paul had presented to them on the Sabbath days, they began to, to cross-reference and see and, 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 and have questions about, well, now, if that's true, then what does that mean for what Isaiah says about the one who conquers and the one who, who's going to fly and, 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 and the wings? and well, how do we, don't, we, didn't, we haven't seen this before, so how do we make sense of all of this? And certainly they could consult with Paul during their daily examination for him to give more illumination about it. But that's exactly what they did. They together, as a group of people, examined the scriptures daily to see if the things that Paul was saying about this Jesus were true. I want to pull the car over right now. Put on the brake. And I want to ask you, do you want to be like that? Do you really want to be like that? I think we've got to, we've got to um, admit something that's a reality. For most of us in this room, including myself, I almost brought a mirror up here today and stood it right there so I could look at myself. We have gotten so far in our culture with dig, in the digital age, That we are like our culture, that we just, uh, we look at the picture, we read the 140 characters, or now 280, or whatever it is. We, We see the story, but we're so mesmerized by the sight of our eyes, what we see, what we can, the images. We are losing the ability to open up any book, but in our case here, the book, and read it, and study it, and observe in it, and make connections, and get thrilled by what we see in it, and we just have to let it out to our best friends because we're so mesmerized by what's found in this book that the God of all ages inspired and breathed out over a course of 3,000 years and has delivered it to us in all perfection, in all infallibility, and in all inspiration that we know that when we read it and we see what it says that we know what God himself said. That's the way they were. And so I want to tell you right now to give you three ways that you can bind yourself to Scripture. Bind yourself to Scripture. And I'm going to illustrate it in in three kind of singular words. The row, the circle, and the chair. The row, the circle, and the chair. You're in the row right now. The row is Sunday morning. 1015 to 1145 or so, you commit yourself to come with God's people and to sit in these rows and sing God's songs and listen to God's word and repeat um, God's word through various forms that other people come up here and either read it or recite it or have us recite it to pray through God's word, and then to have a preacher like someone like me coming up right now and opening it up and you listening with attentive ears and open hearts to see what God has to say on this Lord's day is sitting in the row. But I want to say this, I want to say this, especially in our culture, at our times, it's easy to not bind yourself to the row. So you have to fight against the hard downstream current of just doing what is comfortable, what is easy, what what is smooth. But if you want to bind yourself to scripture, I am convinced that the primary way that God speaks to his people where they examine it is corporately in the row on Sundays. Second, the circle. Now, I don't know when the rollout is officially, but home groups are starting here really soon. And that's the idea of the circle. Now, a lot of you are already engaged in the circle. It's a smaller group of people who sit around, and you can see eyeball to eyeball, and you engage over Scripture. You talk about what's in the Word of God. You have questions about theology. You you, you have questions about how it relates to your real life and your real problems and your real decisions, and you pray for one another as you discuss the Word. But there's that iron-sharpening iron effect sitting in that circle where you're really promoting and sharpening and loving and helping. helping one another grow in your bindedness to Scripture and then your ability to walk that out in your everyday life. That's the circle. And so I would encourage you, I would encourage you to commit to the circle when it's offered. Corey, what's the rollout date, buddy? March 7th 7th is when the circle starts. That's one way to bind yourself to Scripture. And then the chair. The chair, if I I'd have gotten somebody to help me, I'd have got put a nice chair here with a little table and a Bible and a notebook and a pen and maybe a cup of coffee or a cup of tea or something and just had this. This is a way in which every single day you can bind yourself to Scripture as you open up God's book and read God's Word and meditate on it and think about it and pray to Him through it and then go out in your day and let it out in some way. That's your individual relationship with God. But you've got the row, the circle, and the chair. And if you really want to bind yourself to Scripture, commit yourself to all three of those things. All right, finally, not only do we have the exposition of God's Word, the examination of God's Word, let's look at the transformation by God's Word. The transformation by God's Word. Verse 12 says, many of them therefore believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But also look as well at the fact that they helped Paul get out of town immediately. They, they conducted him. They brought him as far as Athens, which was a week, weeks-long travel to get down there if they went by land. We don't know exactly how they went but I want us to just see that there was a transformation of salvation and a transformation of service. Like, they experienced deliverance. They they were were wanting God's word. They were wanting to follow him. They had binded themselves to the revealed will that they had at the time, but then when Jesus was presented to them, the glory of God in the face of Christ shone not only on their eyes but down into their hearts, and they crossed over from darkness into light, from deadness into life. They walked, those. Over into what the Colossians could say and what Paul could say is they transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's beloved son and they never looked back. They had a transformation of salvation when they heard the word about Jesus. And then it immediately changed their mentality to the point where they started serving they were called brothers, and they gathered their resources, and they said, Paul, we've got to get you out of here. The Thessalonians are bearing down. We don't want you to die here. We want you to keep preaching this message that you preached to us. And so we pull our money. Let's get a couple of our guys there and go all the way down with to Athens. They're going to let anything happen to you. They'll, they'll come back. Well, how, how are they going to support their family? Oh, hey, we'll take care of them. But they're, they're going to take care of you until you get down to where you need to go. They had a transformation of salvation, a transformation of service, and their lives were totally changed. By the word of God, as is exposed to them in the face of Christ. So, I'll tell you, uh, I've got a a few questions that I want to ask. But, I just want to show you this this book, Holiness, by J.C. Ryle. It's... um, apart from the Bible, my favorite book I've ever had. Um, I've taken it with me on road trips. It's been on many states, um, hotel rooms, camps. But because I kind of treated it probably not as well as I, I could have, it, it's, it's got a problem. It's, uh, it's been a little sensitive. Uh, to, I guess, how I've treated or whatever, and for whatever reasons, uh, it's, it's got this problem. Okay, look. Oh, I didn't know how that was going to go. <laughs> but it had, was about as dramatic as I could think that it could have happened. This is what I want to tell you. Um, when we loosen ourselves from Scripture in some ways. It's not like we still don't have a little truth, and we still don't have some good things that we do, and our lives don't look like, um, you know, something terrible because you, you can see it. and no, that's that's really good. But when we loosen ourselves from Scripture, there are some things that happen. There's some fallout that maybe Aaron can't see about my life. Or maybe Corey can't see about my heart. But over time, I get so loosed that I make a decision that I'm no longer going to live for the glory of the God who revealed himself to me in Jesus. But it's going to become about me. I'll still use some Christian words. I'll still attend church. I'll still smile. I might even still give. But My heart will be distant from God. And God will still use his work. He'll still do his work. He'll still save people. He'll still build his church. He's just not going to make me a central part of that. Let's bind ourselves to Scripture. Let's pray. Father, in the name of Jesus Christ, the Lord, we pray that you will help us bind ourselves to you, the God of the word. Amen.
1: Thank you for the opportunity. Right. If our deacons would go ahead and be getting the elements for communion uh, handed out. That would be awesome. Um, this is your first time here with us this morning, Uh, one of the ways we believe uh, that is a right response to the proclamation of God's word, uh, the gospel, uh, is um, abiding in Christ, uh, remaining in him, thank you, Rod, Um, being one with him. That's, That's the call he calls from us is come and be with me, come and be one with me, and so one of the ways he vividly portrays this in the scriptures is he sits down with his disciples and he, uh, with bread and cup, uh, shares with them that the bread that he's giving them is his body broken for them. And he calls them to eat of him. And then he shares that the cup is his blood poured out as the new covenant. To forgive their sins and make them righteous before God. And he calls them to drink of him. And so we believe that this is a wonderful way to respond when God's word is proclaimed. Um, But one of the things that we also believe about this time is that it is not uh, a a light matter. It's, It's not anything to play around with. It's not... Wrote, or just something that we do at the end of a service, uh, this time is very, very serious. I want to read to you 1 Corinthians 11, verses 27 through 32. Paul writes, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. So that we may not be condemned along with the world. And so I share that with you this morning just to remind you that this is sacred. Uh, It's sacred when we gather together. It's sacred when we sing songs together and lift our voices to the Lord. It's sacred when we confess sin and profess faith together. It's sacred when we hear, when we sit in the row and hear the word of God preached. And it's sacred now how we respond to that word as those who would believe by eating and drinking and remembering our oneness with Christ. I've got it, Wendell. Thank you. And so what I want to do, I want to give you just a moment uh, to bow your head and to just confess maybe personal sin before the Lord Just spend some time with him.